This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comic show here on the network. I am one of the hosts, Matthew Rushing, and with me for the last time in 2015, the illustrious Dan Gunther Esquire. Ah, <laughs> uh, man, I wish. I hear those Esquires make some pretty serious cash. Uh, that would be kind of nice. <laughs> Well, I mean, they have their own magazine, so I would hope so. <laughs> uh, so how's it going this evening, Matthew? You know what? It's going well, Dan. Uh, it had a big night last night recording the 602 Club about The Force Awakens. Uh, I was up very late and then did a lot of editing today and got that out. And uh, But it's nice to be on vacation for the holidays now, so can't really complain how about you not too bad not too bad um that's really exciting i'm actually really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the new star wars movie so uh very excited to be able to listen to that here right away well luckily it's the holidays because it was a long one (laughs) but i think it was an excellent show you know having the guys that i did with uh john and bruce and darren those guys are fantastic so uh they'll rock your socks off but um We don't really have any news for books and comics today, Dan, but we did have some Literary Trek show news. And as everybody knows, we are dedicated to the books and the comics of Star Trek. And doing a show like this takes a lot of work for both of us um, because it requires us to read an enormous amount of books. In fact, Dan, I was just looking... At my Goodreads today, and looking at the amount of books that I have read this year, and according to Goodreads, that's 116 books. Wow. <laughs> so it is an enormous undertaking that we have, and a lot of those obviously are the Star Trek books that we're reading here. So mm-hmm. because of that, Dan, I think for you and I, um, a little, little tired And so we're going to be doing something a little bit different next year. Yeah, that's right, Matthew. Next year, we're going to be cutting back our schedule just a little bit, not a lot here. Uh, But the plan going forward is to do three episodes per month uh, rather than the usual what we have been doing, which is a new episode every week. Uh, So, you know, a slight change, a little bit less workload on us. It's funny you mentioned Goodreads because I actually looked at my Goodreads totals as well. 
and I ended up reading seven non-Star Trek books last this past year. So, uh, you know, I love Star Trek. I love Star Trek books. Uh, but yeah, a little bit of more room in the schedule for non-Trek reading would be very welcome, I think, for both of us. So uh, we're just, yeah, pairing things back just a little bit. Uh, you know, we're still going to be talking about all of the new releases next year, of course, and a lot of other stuff in between. So, you know, we're still going to be bringing you great episodes of Literary Treks, just pulling it back a little bit. Well, and we, you know, we do. We have some great things planned for you. Um, I think one of the things that we have been talking about is doing the Enterprise relaunch, you know, starting with the good that men do and going forward from there until we reach the rise of the Federation, which we've already been covering. And then uh, we've also batted around uh, doing the Shatner verse. Uh, so that would be a lot of fun. So we have so many things in the hopper. But yeah, at the same time, it is a tough road for us. We, we do end up reading so much. And, you know, I mean, for me, even today, I may have been off of work, but I still had to cram to read, I had to find the time to read because I had other things I needed to do with the holidays here. So it can be very busy for us. And we didn't want to go to just two times a month because I don't feel like we get as much done. We want to be able to cover stuff for you guys. So I think that this will be the best. Uh, I don't think it's always going to be a set schedule. So the the time every month may not always be at the same time where we skip an episode or what you, you know, a week that we're off. But that'll just come in the schedule, you know, as we're doing interviews and stuff like that when it's available for us. So but we appreciate all of you, and we appreciate Star Trek books, and we're just as dedicated as ever. This will help Dan and I to continue to be as dedicated as possible to the show and, and not get burnt out on you guys. Uh, we want to be here because we want to be here. But we also do need time in our very busy lives, and I think everybody can understand that. Um, but uh, I, I think it's going to be great. I think it's going to be really great for everyone involved and... You know, as we move forward, too, I, you know, we've been doing this for a long time now. And this show, we are on 134. So for fans, you know, who maybe are just finding the show or you maybe haven't listened to there's so much back catalog now as well that, you know, whenever we're not having an episode that week, it's a good time to hit that back catalog and enjoy a previous episode you may have missed. Definitely. Yeah, there's so many uh, great episodes uh, you know, back before I joined the show, a lot of the, the stuff with you and, and Christopher Jones, I mean, you guys did some really great episodes early on. And, uh, you know, I, I'd actually like to go back and listen to some of those old ones that I might have missed along the way. So, yeah, no, that's that's a great point for sure. Well, Dan, being here at the end of the year, that means that, um, you know, we're actually going to talk about the last Star Trek book of the year this year, Child of Two Worlds. But... That means we can kind of talk about maybe what our favorite books of the year were in Star Trek books. So uh, we each decided you just pick out three, and I'm I don't know what your list is, so I'm really excited to hear. But Dan, uh, I don't I don't think we're giving him in any specific order. But what was one of your favorite books that was released in the year of 2015? Okay, well, one of my favorite novels. Uh kind of a surprise to me actually that this is on the list because you know five-year mission 
original Star Trek novels are not usually my favorites. I do enjoy them, but they're not usually, you know, at the top of my list every year. But I do have to say, I really enjoyed, uh, from earlier on this year, Crisis of Consciousness by Dave Gallanter. I thought was a really, really excellent novel. Uh, a lot of really interesting themes in that book. A lot of really great stuff for Spock to do, who, you know, is one of my favorite characters. Uh, so yeah, that one is uh, definitely near the top of my list and in my top three Star Trek novels this year. That Yeah, that's a good choice. I, I had a great time with that one. And of course, getting to talk to Dave and, and getting the behind the scenes in that one was so much fun. So, you know, for me, uh, one of the earlier books this year still stands out to me and that's takedown oh yeah really really enjoyed takedown and that was john jackson miller's first big foray into star trek books obviously he had written absent enemies the novella but this is his first full-length novel and i have to say i just i really enjoyed takedown it was so much fun and, you know, I would say in the 24th century, there hasn't been a lot of fun recently for a lot of those characters since Destiny, honestly. And this just turned out to be a rip-roaring, excellent adventure, throwing things in that we haven't seen from the next generation for a while. So, yeah, really appreciated Takedown. That's a that's a very, very good choice. That was really, really, really close to making my list as well. Excellent choice. Um, another one that I have on my list, uh, is from later in the year. And, you know, this is an author who frequently appears on my top, uh, lists of Star Trek novels every year. And I, I think you probably won't be surprised by this. Uh, and that's, uh, Star Trek Voyager Atonement by Kirsten Beyer. I really, really, really love that book. Uh, you know, every year, almost every year, Kirsten Beyer comes out with at least one Voyager novel. And it's always killer. And she really got me with this one with some great character moments for Janeway, uh, dealing with kind of recent events and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, this one was definitely a highlight of 2015 for me. I completely agree with you, Dan. Uh, that's actually on my list. And, uh, you know... <sighs> I don't know if I had ever thought in my life that a Voyager book would be up there, but uh, Kirsten Byer continues to just knock it out of the park. Uh, and Atonement was a fantastic wrap-up um, to that trilogy, and it had a great emotional payoff with a lot of the characters and the situations they had been in. And I cannot wait for Pocket Full of Lies, which is coming very early in the new year. So, yeah, well done, Kirsten Byer and... Uh, God, you keep making me love Voyager, so <laughs> she's doing something right. Absolutely, yeah. Well, uh, for me, the last one uh, that I thought of that um, I just really enjoyed was Sight Unseen. And, you know, there's just something. James Swallow, when it comes to Titan, he just nails it for me. I love his characterization. I love what he did in this book. I loved the way, and I'm saying loved a lot because I loved this book, <laughs> Uh, I, I liked the, the way that he was weaving the story, especially at, with Riker and Vale trying to figure out that relationship now that it's different. And I, I can't remember honestly anything that didn't work for me in this story. I just I thought it was fantastic. So you know, for me, uh, that kind of rounds out what I thought of um, 
What ended up being the last one for you? <laughs> well, Matthew, you and I are very much on the same wavelength here uh, with our last two choices because, yeah, Sight Unseen uh, is also my final uh, final book on this list here. Uh, I love the... <laughs> there I go, too, throwing the the L word around there. We've loved... We loved it a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, like so many great character moments in this book. Uh, I really enjoyed the alien race and their wooden ships and just a lot of really cool ideas packed into this book along with, you know, the character dynamics and, you know, a really huge emotional payoff uh, at the end of that book as well. Just really knocked that one out of the park for me, for sure. So yeah, Sight Unseen by James Swallow. Uh, I think I think a list of the best Star Trek novels of the year is woefully incomplete if that book is not on it. Completely, completely agree. Well, Dan, uh, before we head off into the feature talking about uh, Child of Two Worlds, um, what are some of the places that people can find us online if they want to get in contact with us or find the shows? Or Well, Matthew, you can find us, of course, online uh, at trek.fm, which is our main page where you can find all the podcasts on the Trek FM network, exploring every corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. Uh, the easiest way, of course, to find us is on iTunes. Uh, but if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. Uh, you can find us on Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. And like I said, you can stream and download the MP3 file directly from our website website, and grab the RS, RSS link as well. Uh, if you want to get in, in contact with us, uh, we have a contact form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also leave us a voicemail. Uh, just look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm. Uh, we're on Twitter. Our username there is at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. Now, if you'd like to talk to a lot of the hosts of many different shows on Trek FM, we've got the Babel Conference page on Facebook. Just go, just type the Babel Conference into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. Now, for Literary Treks, we also have a Goodreads group. Uh, you can find us, of course, on goodreads.com and just search for Literary Treks. And there we have our bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as what we're currently reading, so you know what's coming up for future shows. And plus, there are always great conversations happening about all the books and comics that make up the Star Trek universe. Well, Dan, we have reached the end of the year, and it's crazy to think uh, that it's another year gone. Uh, next year going to be a huge year for Star Trek books with the 50th anniversary. And uh, I think a great way to wrap up this year, heading into next year, with a original series novel. And yet, at the same time, this is really before the original series, in the sense that this takes place with Pike and his crew on the Enterprise, and not the crew that we're so used to. And, of course, Pike from the original pilot. So what a great way to kind of kick off almost the new year, even though we haven't quite reached it yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a neat way to uh, usher in the 50th anniversary of Star Trek to really go back to where it all began. Uh, this story takes place very close in time to uh, the cage, that original pilot of Star Trek. So, you know, it's kind of... Uh, looking at the roots of Star Trek a little bit, uh, with, even with some of the terminology and stuff in this book, uh, Greg Cox has really kind of brought us back to where it all started. Uh, you know, that famous shot of space flying by as we 
as the camera goes down into the bridge on the original Enterprise and we see Pike and his crew there. That's really where we are in this book here. Yeah, uh, it's it's a great place to explore the character of Spock too mm-hmm. because you know this character is different than the one that we do get in the original series proper. I mean, uh we like to call him on the network shouty Spock. <laughs> Uh, because this Spock has a tendency to shout things. Coming out of hyperspace, Captain! <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very. Uh, I, I feel like a lot of the direction that he was given at the, or, or that maybe that all of the uh, cast members were given at the time was like, imagine yourself on an old sailing ship or that kind of thing. And, and because I, I always get that impression that he's like the first mate on the deck of a ship yelling over the crashing of the waves or something, because it always seemed really over the top. It really does. Uh, it's so funny that it, it you know, I, I don't think the Vulcan had been defined really at all. Mm-hmm. And so it was almost like there was an overabundance of emotion instead of, you know, a lack thereof with the shouting mm-hmm. and, you know, it is really interesting. I mean, this whole thing of seeing Spock as a young man, it's a its a great setup of the character. Again, especially as we're moving into that 50th anniversary, I love the idea that we are going to be with the one character who was in, you know, all incarnations of Star Trek, the original series, from you know, the cage onwards, and uh, Spock is that one character that that transfers to both. Spock is also the character who jumped all the way into the JJ-verse, too, so Spock has kind of been in almost every incarnation of Star Trek and and throughout its entire history, so what a great place to begin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Really, like, the character that, that kind of defines Star Trek. I mean, even people who aren't fans if you mention star trek they'll usually say oh that's the one with and they'll usually say dr spock but you know people associate him with star trek so much so you know it's it's great to get this novel uh with this beautiful cover really showcasing spock in his early years here uh and yeah like that kind of picture and and you know the subject of this book just screams what star trek is all about for sure well and uh, the whole idea, you know, what's real interesting in Spock is, especially here, the the turmoil of coming to terms with who he is, and this Spock has no idea. I mean, he he really he's doing all he can to deny the fact that he's human, but by doing that, Spock is actually denying part of who he is, and so there's always this almost can understand maybe why he's shouty Spock because there's this volcano beneath him that's always rumbling and it's just ready to come out because you know when you deny a part of yourself you're hurting yourself psychologically you know you're you're actually kind of damaging yourself in that way uh and, and until you come to terms and accept you know, then you can actually make a change or move forward or any of those things. But Spock hasn't been able to do that yet. This is way too early. You know, that Spock won't come until the, you know, undiscovered country. And we'll see that Spock has finally become one with all of that who he is, you know. And 
I, I, that's one of the things I really liked uh, about this book was the fact of getting to, to watch that, you know, especially as in the story, he has the opportunity to maybe transfer to an all Vulcan ship, mm-hmm. the Intrepid. And does he want that? And, you know, for all those frustrations for Spock of living with humans, I thought that was really an interesting thing to, to see them open up that possibility for Spock and him really to have to wrestle with where is it best for me to be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really liked Greg Cox's use of that sort of plot device to allow Spock to explore kind of his place among a ship full of humans. And, you know, what's interesting to me is is he would be, I think, almost just as out of place on a ship full of Vulcans as he is on a ship full of humans. Because like you say, both parts are, both halves of him are part of who he is. And, you know, he's never going to be exactly the same as a ship full of Vulcans or a ship full of humans. He's always going to have a little bit of a struggle to kind of find his place. And that's one thing I thought Greg Cox did really, really well in this book was uh, the characterization of Spock in these early years. Uh, he feels very unsure of himself, uh, you know, even more so than maybe in early episodes of the original series. Sometimes you you get that hint that he can't figure out these illogical humans. Well, it feels even more so here. And I think it's mostly because he can't figure himself out as well, which I thought was, you know, it was it was almost a very subtle thing in the book. I can't even point to specific things that Spock said or thought that made me think of him as younger, but but Greg Cox did a really good job of just kind of subtly making him seem younger, less experienced, and uh, a little more immature, if, if you can call Spock at all immature at any point, you know, uh, really figuring himself out here. No, I agree with you completely, because there's a great scene there where he's come up with a plan uh, to take care of these Klingon intruders on the Enterprise. And he's climbing through the bowels of the ship. And he actually questions himself in his own mind, which is not something that we would ever see Spock do, I feel like, in the original series and beyond. Spock is always so sure of himself and who he is and his decisions and his logic. But this is a Spock who isn't quite there yet. Uh, And I really thought that that was a successful look at this character and who he is in this time period. And it really did. It just added something to the storyline to, you know, to getting in a little bit deeper. And, you know, funny for me, you know, Spock has never been my favorite character whatsoever in Star Trek. But um, I I found this really uh, enlightening and enjoyable to be reading about this Spock because he isn't quite so perfect and that actually made it a little bit more fun for me to read because he doesn't have all his crap together yet, you know? Yeah, and, and I mean, that's a that's one thing that I really like about this book, too, is he hasn't said it in this time period just because, oh, wouldn't it be kind of cool to have Pike and the other crew on this ship? There's an actual really good reason to set this story at this time, and that's really to give Spock this role in the story. And at this, you know, I don't want to say turning point necessarily in his life, but just kind of this early stage where, you know, he really could go 
a couple different directions and become a very different person than what we get to know later on. Uh, and yeah, like Greg Cox just has a, a, an excellent reason for setting it here. And that's to really see Spock contend with, uh, maybe emotions he doesn't quite have a handle on as well as he does later. It's an interesting thing because I, I do think that this is kind of a turning point for the Spock character. It's a small one, but it is there. And it makes it very interesting because he has to decide, is he going to stay with humans and, and a more diverse crew, or is he going to seclude himself with uh, the Vulcans and, um, you know, uh, kind of cloister himself with that. And it is very interesting because he decides that he enjoys the diversity. And I think that's a that's a pretty big turning point for Spock, even though he might not completely understand it now. It's going to have a huge impact on who he becomes and how he actually becomes more at one and more at peace with himself throughout the years. You know, it almost feels like uh, if Spock were to go to a ship full of Vulcans, uh, if his aim is to be more Vulcan and to kind of identify more with that side of him, on a ship full of Vulcans, he would just kind of be another in a whole bunch of Vulcans, where as in a crew of humans, or non-Vulcans anyway, he could really stand out. And it almost strikes me that he can define himself more as a Vulcan by standing apart from the people around him than he could if he was uh, in a group of Vulcans living and working. So it's almost like that same idea of being a big fish in a small pond kind of thing. So by his uniqueness, he's better able to embrace what is Vulcan about him, if that makes sense. No, I completely get that. Um, because uh, it, the way in which Spock would be with a bunch of Vulcans, um, yeah, Spock can't be just defined by his Vulcanity, if that's a word. I'm going to make it up. <laughs> uh, he has to be defined by both parts of himself and it, it reminds me of Worf you know like Worf is is Klingon but he's raised by humans and therefore uh, honestly I think he was the more successful character especially by the time you get to Deep Space Nine when it comes to um, cross-species um, character you know he is fully Klingon but he's raised by humans, so it changes everything for him. And in the same way Spock, you know, he's part human, part Vulcan. And therefore, these characters... And, and it's what so interesting. The, the end for Spock here is talking about making the choice. You have the right to choose which way you're going to go. And, you know, Spock does choose the Vulcan way, but he also chooses to stay here with a ship that's diverse, that it's mostly human. And that's an interesting thing. It's almost like he's starting to learn he has to accept both sides of himself mm -hmm. and not just one. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Uh, it's interesting uh, comparing him to another of our favorite characters here, Worf, 
in that, you know, this book really kind of compares him to another quote unquote Klingon as well. So, you know, in the story, we have uh, this young woman who is taken as a girl from her home planet by the Klingons and then raised as a Klingon. And now her biological sister has kidnapped her back to bring her back home. Uh, But, you know, again, like Spock, she is, you know, a child of two worlds here, uh, torn between her two uh, cultures. Now, unlike Spock, she's, you know, not half and half, but she was born one and raised in another. Uh, so it's it's kind of interesting to kind of compare, you know, Vulcan, Vulcan human to Klingon Cyprian here <laughs> and, you know, kind of really get that interesting parallel between the two characters in this story. You know, both have a dual heritage and feel the pull of both sides of their respective cultures and what's really cool is Spock, of all people, ends up kind of feeling a kinship with Murata in this story. That was so fascinating. And it's funny, as we mentioned Worf, she's the complete opposite of Worf, mm. which is, you know, it, she is Cyprian, but she's raised by Klingons. And she identifies then as a Klingon because that's how she's grown up. You know, that's how she was nurtured and raised, you know, and it, this book has a whole interesting conversation about, uh, nurture over nature. Um, and how much of there is of both, because I think that's something that's really interesting with both Spock and Moretta is that they can't deny the other piece of them, but there is one that is, has a stronger pull mm-hmm. And so they're always going to be a little bit of both. And I thought that that was a really interesting thing. Uh, And, I, you know, fascinating to see, especially, again, somebody raised Klingon and wanting to be that. You know, because here we we still see the Klingons as the enemy. And they kind of are the enemy here, but at the same time, this guy did take this young girl and raise her as his own daughter, and he doesn't seem to treat her badly. Mm. He seems to really care about her, love her, and have, has accepted her as his, you know, daughter. If there's one thing I think that could have been done better was to give a little bit more to their relationship so we knew what was going on there you know did he really you know what was her upbringing like on her you know with the Klingons I think that's the one thing that I really would have liked to have seen yeah because you know as we what we get in the story is you're you're never really sure if it's you know you know we we assume and and we kind of get from the story that it's a an actual loving relationship as a a Klingon would have with a biological offspring but you're never quite certain if it's not just kind of an advanced form of Stockholm syndrome or something like that, you know. I mean, if you think about it, like she was forcibly taken as a child from her family and most of her family killed in that incident. Like to us, you know, to us humans and the Cyprians, like that's a a brutal, barbaric kind of uh, crime. And uh, so it's really interesting here that you know, by the end, the conclusion that we get is uh, kind of a, a respect of, 
you know, the Klingon way of life and how she's been raised, uh, which which I thought was interesting and, and not at all expected. Yeah, it was it was very different. Um, and I, I really did enjoy uh, the way that it helped inform the character of Spock, you know, and it was interesting to see, you know, Spock have uh, this kind of empathy mm-hmm. that um, we will see later on in Spock, you know, and in, in, in the original series, Spock does have those characteristics, you know, it's it's not, he's not dead inside, you know, he does have emotion and here he shows it uh, in such a, a very Vulcan fashion but but it's still very much there, and I really appreciated that about the story. Mm. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting um, that, you know, Spock kind of takes the actions that he does towards the end of this novel. And it really made me think of, uh, you know, the fact that he's he'll do something very similar in the future uh, for Captain Pike, actually, you know, kind of going against orders and, and not being entirely truthful with uh, the people in that command him and that sort of thing so you know it's kind of the seeds of uh, a little bit of uh, rebellion here in Spock which is really interesting uh, and really fits with kind of the the take that we get on his character here which uh, you know is is a lot more um, I don't want to say rash because he's not not very rash he's still very logical Vulcan but he still feels like he acts a little bit more with his heart than he than the Spock we kind of know later on, you know, more so. Yeah, I know. I, I agree with you completely. Um, you know, it's funny because on top of, you know, this Spock character and then, of course, our, our child of two worlds, it was really interesting because we're in the cage era and it leads to having all that terminology that we get and and I thought it was interesting that Cox decides to continue to use that, like lasers or hyperdrive or spaceships. Oh my, you know, um, very uh, funny to read because you know, so used to in Star Trek books and the shows it being one way, and then you read this and you're like, wait, oh, oh yeah, I guess that that's what they called it back then. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty cool. I. I remember kind of take, doing a double take at the book when they mentioned uh, disengaging the hyperdrive. I was like, oh yeah, they... Are we on the Millennium Falcon? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, flying through space ain't like dust and crops, boy. You know, I expected Han Solo to, on a Wookiee yell to start... Never tell me the odds! <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, that was that was pretty cool. Uh, I was kind of surprised he didn't pull out the uh, the time warp factor terminology at some point i was kind of waiting for that but uh but he opted not to use that one i guess but you know it was pretty cool to kind of place this story firmly in this time period and one thing that i thought was really cool and really showed that you know greg cox kind of did his homework and and really looked carefully at these episodes uh was we get actually an explanation for why there are paper printouts on the bridge of the enterprise which as it turns out isn't kind of a norm on Starfleet ships at this time. It's because uh, Captain Pike is kind of a charming eccentric who really digs uh, reading hard copy paper printouts of of reports, which I thought was a neat little character thing that I didn't expect. That's kind of cool. 
Well, at least this paper has corners. So, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so <laughs> someone hasn't gone through with a paper cutter and meticulously cut every corner off the paper. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> I only read paper that's cut at a 45 degree angle on every corner. So get on that. Uh, yeah, it was fun. It, you know, it it did bring back a sense of that. It reminded me of kind of like the gold key comics, mm-hmm. you know. That's kind of the feeling you get with some of this terminology, and it's a lot of fun. So, yeah, I'd love to serve on the spaceship Enterprise. Yeah, that sounds yeah, so cool yeah. and retro. I love it. <laughs> it is funny, though. I, I have to ask you this question because, you know, using that terminology, it doesn't really fit anymore with Enterprise, though. Mm-hmm. And so you could not do that terminology and get away with it, you know, because obviously the timeline now through Enterprise doesn't use that. And I will say as well, too, the the uh, the cage, you know, because it wasn't officially the real pilot, you know, and everything, we only see it in the menagerie later on, uh, you know, it could or could not be considered canon for what they do there. So, yeah, it, but it was fun that Greg decided to go with it because it, it just, it there like I said, it gives that pulp feel, uh, that that gold key comics feel in it that that's fun because the rest of it is very star trek so i really feel like that part more than anything else might have been a bit of a nod to the fact that we're coming into the 50th anniversary and you know why not really acknowledge where we started from and uh you know uh what could have been maybe i guess is kind of a a good way to put it Well, you know, what was also really interesting is the storyline on Cypria. Um, we, we end up in a really strange place, uh, and we keep talking about this, but it's very interesting because it keeps coming up in our Star Trek books, but this idea of the media, mobs, and violence, you know, uh, and, and the way that the, the media picks up this story about this lost girl, and it becomes, an, uh, you know, sensation around the the globe of that planet and um the mobs you know get into the streets and start demanding this release and then the mob starts to t- say things that just aren't true you know as if the federation is responsible for stealing this poor girl uh, even though they've just gotten caught in the middle and it just it's so timely you know it, it again it's an interesting way to wrap up the year with Star Trek books because it's happened a few times now. And it just reminds me of the danger of that mob mentality, how the media can feed that badly. And it and a lot of times it leads to violence because, you know, when you're so riled up, you're not thinking straight. Mm-hmm. And uh, that ends up happening here. And number one in her landing team almost lose their lives because of it so i mean it it's really well played out in this story and it it's just a it, it was one of the parts of the story where it was like i felt uncomfortable reading it because like it, it was so close to home with some of the things we see on tv these days mm-hmm. yeah it really um it really struck me and like you said yeah it really hits home close to home because uh you know it makes people feel uncomfortable because you know, the average citizen on Cypria, I'm sure, really uh, supports the idea of bringing this young woman home because they don't know the whole story and they don't know everything that's going on kind of thing. Uh, and the average citizen is not going to be uh, 
wanting to do violence and that sort of thing, but they will still, you know, contribute to this mob mentality and really get behind the movement and that kind of thing. And you see that all the time and a lot lately in news and stuff, of course, too, is, you know, people will say things in the media and get uh, people really riled up and stuff. And then, you know, people go out and do violence and commit heinous crimes in the name of, you know, what's been, what's been said about, you know, a particular issue and, you know, even people who strongly support that issue and there's nothing wrong with that, you know, get lumped in with people committing horrible acts of violence and that sort of thing. And, you know, it, it really, it really feeds into this horrible loop of creating, uh, people like that who will go out and do monstrous things in the name of, you know, an idea or a belief. And, uh, it's, it's really frustrating and really, you know, when you see it put in a novel like this, it makes you really introspective and realize, wow, you know, what am I doing, uh, when I share something on Facebook or when I, uh, you know, and it could be something completely innocuous, something that you believe strongly, uh, but, then there are other people that always just take that way too far, like this mob at the hotel that at physically attack and nearly kill these Starfleet officers who are just there negotiating with the government. Yeah, uh, it, it's those people who will take that opportunity to use it for their own like personal gain, you know, to 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 be able to to use it as an excuse to for bad behavior. Mm-hmm. Or to score political points, like the like the leader yeah. in this, uh, in this mm-hmm. book does. So on both sides of the issues, whether it's politically uh, in the media or just the people in the mob, all of them do these things, and it just it's just a mess, mm-hmm. you know. And and it just reminds you as you're reading it that that's not the way to get anything done, mm-hmm. you know. Um, a huge mob is not the way to change things. Um, and there's a big difference between that and, say, something like, you know, I, I remember uh, at the very beginning of this year uh, seeing the movie Selma, you know, and the way in which that kind of demonstration was used for an excellent point, but not to inflame or, you know, uh, to have anybody uh, put forth just a completely personal agenda to be able to get away with bad behavior. It was for the betterment of a whole portion of society, mm. you know? So it, it's just, there's a big difference <laughs> when, when, and when you're reading this, yeah, it does just hit close to home. And, and it's interesting that uh, the Trek writers, I think this year have picked up on some of those things and have been reflecting it in their stories. Let's hope maybe 2016 can be better. I doubt it, <laughs> but uh, we'll cross our fingers. <laughs> you know, one thing this story really reminded me of, and, um, you know, the the more I kind of thought about it, the more I realized that, you know, there are a lot of parallels there, is do you remember the, the custody battle over the, the Cuban boy, uh, Elian Gonzalez, a few years yes. ago? I, I really noticed a lot of parallels in this story and that and the kind of media circus that built up around it. And I mean, you know, it's not a one-to-one comparison. You know, a lot of the same things didn't happen here as happened there. But uh, I, I really feel like there, there was, there seemed to be a lot of inspiration taken from, from maybe that incident in writing this story. Uh, it felt, 
like as I was reading it, I, it felt very familiar to me and somebody suggested that and I thought, oh, that's, that's perfect. That's exactly what this is reminding me of. It, that is funny. I hadn't thought of that, but that's really good. Um, and it, when you think about the, the political malstorm that hit uh, because of that in the media malstorm, it, yeah, makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So, um, oh, goodness. I, I wish I had been able to place those together. I can't believe I hadn't been able to do that. Yeah, but, I'm, I'm, I, I'd forgotten about that until just now we were just talking about it. Um, but yeah, no, that was uh, a lot of the, the media stuff, especially, and the polit- the kind of scoring political points idea there. Uh, felt very very familiar to me with regards to that story for sure well uh, dan um for for you this being the last book of the year uh how does it end up rating for you what did you end up you know where would you place this uh on a rating scale well i i really enjoyed this story i don't necessarily think it's you know one of the groundbreaking stories of the year but i did really enjoy it i think it's a very very solid book uh, you know, I really enjoy character pieces, and this uh, ends up being a very interesting character piece for Spock and for, of course, the guest uh, the guest star alien of the week kind of thing here. Um, so I would say it's, you know, it's a really solid four hand lasers out of five for me. How about you? What did you feel about this book? Um... That's a great question, and it was difficult for me to place this one. And I think that it ends up probably being about uh, three and a half out of five written memos for Pike. Uh, it is, I, I like the Spock part, and that's really what the standout was. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a good book to go out in the year on. It's, it's solid, you know, and that's a great way to end. So no complaints. And, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to all we have coming up in the next year. Well, Matthew, I think, uh, you know, a really solid, really good, uh, character piece to kind of end the year with here. Uh, it was a lot of fun talking about, uh, child of two worlds with you today. Uh, you know, kind of learning a little bit more about the young shouty Spock as opposed to the quiet, reserved one we get later on. Yeah, I really think you know. Uh, I'm I'm excited. You know, if this is kind of uh, a preparation for the 50th anniversary, Dan, uh, this is a great prep. You know, this is a good way to start. It's a solid start, and it's also a good way to wrap up the year. And you know, we talk about uh, a lot on the show, you know, the ways in which so many times we seem to get a lot of TOS books. And I appreciated that this one really gave us uh, a book and a time period that we just don't get a lot about. So fantastic job by Greg for that and really letting us open up that Pike era. And uh, again fantastic way to begin the 50th anniversary and uh, gosh we have so many great books lined up there uh this next next year and i can't wait to dive into them all yeah i'm right there with you uh really excited about you know the two big trilogies we're going to be getting next year that's pretty exciting and of course uh, a lot of the uh single books you know we've got the continuation of voyager and uh you know a couple 
Deep Space Nine stories too, which is really, really exciting. So uh, really excited to see everyone back in 2016. I think we're going to have, you know, as good a year as this year, if not a lot better too, because uh, yeah, there's a lot on the horizon that looks really exciting. Well, I hope that everybody will join us there uh, as we journey on. Uh, you know, don't forget that um, you can find all of our shows at iTunes.com slash TrekFM. And we want to thank our Patreon associate producers, Will Wynn, Ken Tripp, Brandon Shamatola, and Bruce Gibson. All of these guys help us keep this show coming to you each week through Patreon. We are a listener-supported network, and we have a lot of things in the works for you guys in 2016. And that means we need your help. Because we're a listener-supported network, there's just no way that we can run all of this that we do here on Trek FM without your support. Go to patreon.com slash trekfm, and you'll be able to find out how you can help all the shows come to you each week. We appreciate your support, and we would love for you to be part of the team. There are many ways that we're giving back to you as well. So again, just go to patreon.com slash trekfm. Now, Dan, uh, man, when you are not running around the Enterprise trying to get away from a Klingon boarding party, where can we find you? Well, Matthew, you know, when I'm managing to give those Klingons a, the slip, <laughs> you can find me online. My website is www.treklet.com. And there I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. My username there is at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. I'm also on Instagram. My username there is Kurtrats47. And you can find my Facebook page at facebook.com slash trekletreviews. And of course, you can always find me kicking around the Babel Conference. And Matthew, when you're not uh, bringing Captain Pike his printouts for his perusal, uh, where can we find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. I like to tweet about those. Uh, I like to take pictures of them on Instagram at MRushing. I'm on The Orb with Christopher Jones where we talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine. I'm also on The 602 Club where we talk about all things geeky that don't have anything to do with Star Trek. Be sure over the holidays to check out that great episode we just did the last one for the year as well there on star wars the force awakens i know you're going to want to check that out and you also have my personal blog at 42 life in between dot wordpress dot com well thank you so much for joining us and until next time live long and read on you call that light reading to each his own number one